Our scripture readings today are from the Old and New Testaments. First, First Chronicles chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. The sons of Judah were Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. And Reah, the son of Shobal, begot Jahath, and Jahath begot Ahumai and Lahad. These were the families of the Zorathites. These were the sons of the father of Edom, Jezreel, Ishma, Ithbash. The name of their sister was Hazelpani. And Penuel was the father of Gedor, and Ezra was the father of Husha. These were the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrathah, the father of Bethlehem. And Asher, the father of Tekoa, had two wives, Hela and Nera. Nera bore him Azram, Hefer, Temani, and Haharstari. These were the sons of Nara. The sons of Hela were Zareth, Zohar, and Ethnah. And Kaz begot Anab, Zobadah, and the families of Ahrael, the son of Hiram. Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. From the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And when he, being Jesus, had called his twelve disciples to them, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Leb and Lebeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this reading and hearing of your holy word. We pray that we would have ears that are open. I pray that you would bless my tongue, that I may say things in accordance with your word. I pray that if I fail in this, Lord, that my tongue would be stopped, or that ears would be stopped so that the things I say would not land thereon. I pray, Heavenly Father, for your blessing upon <coughs> this expounding of your word. We pray this in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen. For those of us who've read through the entire scriptures, gone all the way through the Bible, we know that the first nine chapters of the book of First Chronicles, which I read, are dry going. Names, names, and more names. We're tempted at that point to set scripture against scripture, saying endless genealogies. That's the sort of thing Paul told us to steer clear of in First Timothy. And I say all this not to criticize Holy Scripture, but rather to complain about myself and to complain about us. We find these genealogies uninteresting. They may be like good wine, to gladden the heart of man, but we don't have the taste for it. If we read the commentaries, we know that there are riches in them that we will not find in other places. 
what we have in this portion of First Chronicles, the portion that I read, details of a line in the house of Judah which parallels the line that produced David and thus ultimately, according to the flesh, Christ Jesus. We learn who founded Bethlehem at Ephrathah, which the prophet Micah called little among the thousands of Judah, where David was born and in which in the fullness of time the Christ child would be born. However, for one who is just beginning to learn Old Testament history, what's the benefit of what I read? What's the benefit from the first nine chapters of the first chronicles? I'm convinced that there is a benefit, if for no other reason, and it's a sufficient reason, that scripture insists that there is a benefit. For all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we acknowledge that not all parts of the Bible are equally clear. We also say, also recognize that all not not all parts are equally useful, okay? And even if we don't say that, in practice we do it because probably more of us have memorized Psalm 23 than have memorized the passage from First Chronicles that I just read. So in practice, we recognize that. Nonetheless, Paul says it is profitable, okay? There is some profit in it. What profit is there? the section that I just read, all those names in First Chronicles. What is it that's nearly invisible to us that God is telling us for our good? Let's think about this. Nowhere else in Scripture is Jabez mentioned. You won't find it anyplace else. The name of the city comes, but that's all. Just this one honorable mention in First Chronicles. Apparently, he's outside of the mainstream of the important political events which shaped the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Marginal, perhaps, but he's a righteous man to whom God granted some success in battle. And in this passage, a host of others are likewise mentioned, name after name, hard for us to remember, hard for us to pronounce, but remembered in Holy Scripture and preserved for us to this very day. Now, all men are as grass. Scripture tells us that. We flourish, we wither with the noonday heat, we perish, and the place remembers us no more. That's the way it goes in the cursed world. There's no remembrance of the people who have passed. But look at what's happened here in this passage. God has granted a wondrous grace. Not only are the great people of history, Saul, David, people like that, good and bad, but this seemingly insignificant man is mentioned once, a righteous man who called on the Lord. The curse is reversed in God's grace so that that man is remembered. Did he think that he would be mentioned thousands of years in the future in this place, halfway across the world? What God is giving us here is a slice, however small, of his perfect knowledge of all things. It may be dry reading at first, but if you ever doubt God's knowledge of you, insignificant little you, read the first nine chapters of First Chronicles and be heartened. Hear all those names. For God does know you. He knows you by name. And in the case of those blessed, or in some cases cursed souls, He has deigned that their names be recorded in Scripture for us to see 
much, much later in time. Scripture is closed now, and so our names are not going to appear in some later edition of the Bible. But they may be in the Book of Life, and indeed all of our works that have been done are written down, not in any book we can buy, but known to God. By all of this, we may rightly be heartened. We may realize more and more reasons why this dry passage of Scripture is written for our good, but for the time, it is enough to see how intimately God knows His people, and with what depth God knows all things. Now, just as God seemingly, in First Chronicles, tells us something that we didn't necessarily want to know, so too we are not told things that we might want to know from the passage of Matthew chapter 10, the list of the apostles. Here we find the list of the disciples, those twelve whom Jesus handpicked. Who could be more important than those twelve? Who could be more significant? Were greater men ever on this earth than the men that Jesus handpicked? And yet, let's look at two of those names. James, son of Alphaeus. What do we know of him from Scripture? Can anyone think of something that we know of James, son of Alphaeus, other than his name? There isn't anything. We know that he is listed in all the lists of the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. That's all. Nothing more. A name and a father's name. As for Lebius, surnamed Thaddeus, what do we know? He fares a little bit better. From the other list, we know that he was also known as Judas, son of James, a different Judas than the one who betrayed Jesus. And from the Gospel of John, we know exactly one thing that he uttered. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? John 14, 22. And that's it. We might have expected more, but we're disappointed, for God has not chosen in his word to preserve any other facts of the lives of of these two men chosen by Christ to be his disciples. And so, just as you're heartened by the mention of all those names in First Chronicles, so too be humbled by the lack of mention of these two in the New Testament in any, in any large amount. The things you would think would bring you into the world's spotlight might not do that. You could have been a disciple of Jesus himself and yet only been a name in a list without so much as an utterance recorded with less known than for Jabez. You could, on the other hand, be an obscure person and yet remembered forever for righteousness' sake. Because, of course, the important point is being known by God, not being known by the posterity of men. James, son of Alphaeus, is as known to God as is Jabez, even if we know less of the one than the other. But what does that matter? When you were one of the twelve who were sent out and heard Jesus speak of fearing God and not fearing man, and being taught that one of the grounds for that fear of God is the knowledge of God. Are not two sparrows sold for copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. James, son of Alphaeus, do not fear men, nor desire to be known by them, for you are known by God, and that is sufficient, more than sufficient. Break into rapturous praise of James, son of Alphaeus, and say with David in Psalm 139, 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar off. You you comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. It being so great a thing to be known by God, let us review then what the scriptures have to say about God's knowledge. We say that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. We call it an attribute of God, this omniscience. If we are ever tempted to think that such dry theology, like the dry passage of 1 Chronicles, should leave us unmoved, we read the psalm that I just read part of. It's not dry. Read it afresh to see what praise comes from the pen of David regarding God's knowledge. Common expressions regarding the knowledge of God are put in terms of sight and of seeing. Although since God is a spirit, we know that he doesn't have physical eyes, as do we. Well, we know that we're made in the image of God, so there's some analogy in terms of function. Mechanism is a secondary consideration. The essence of what's going on is the thing. Proverbs 5.21 teaches this after a warning against adultery. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. Not only for the adulterer, for Proverbs 15.3 proclaims, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So, both the evil and the good are seen by God. Job is discouraged by God, being so seemingly slow in his punishment of the wicked, of his vindication of the good, yet does not doubt that the Lord sees the wicked. Indeed, he says, yet his eyes are on their ways. He does not doubt them. Psalm 33 concurs. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. This teaching is not peculiar to wisdom literature. The prophets, too, speak of God's knowledge of all things. Jeremiah says this, Upon considering the captivity to which the people of Judah are destined, their sins of idolatry which led to that, and the eventual return of the captives to the native land. Quote, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. The Lord saw the wickedness that wants the captivity, sees the captivity, he sees that glorious return to the promised land. This isn't an Old Testament quirk either. The writer of Hebrews, after describing the rest that the Lord promises his people, which wasn't fulfilled upon the entering of the land of Canaan, entreats his readers to be diligent to enter that rest and says this, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 14. Fig leaves are insufficient to protect us from the gaze of Almighty God. Nothing is up to that task. But even as that which is concealed from other humans is nonetheless clearly visible to God, there is more that God knows than the raw physical stuff. The ways, the paths, the creatures themselves. Yes, the Lord knows those things which are fundamentally hidden from human view. First and foremost, what our will is in a matter, what our intentions are, what the Bible calls the heart. Hear this, you who were impressed 
with King Saul's impressive stature and who are unimpressed by this young shepherd boy named David. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him, him being one of the brothers of David. For the Lord does not see as man sees. David, who benefited from such teaching, says much the same thing and passes it on to his son. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. Solomon, in turn, says the same thing when dedicating the temple. That God alone knows the hearts of the sons of men. But Jeremiah the prophet goes even further. Deceit does not deter the mind of the Lord from rightly knowing. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. One might have thought the answer might be the spirit of man. The spirit of man knows what's in the heart. But no, even we ourselves can be deceived by our own heart. Only the Lord is up to this task. We may deceive ourselves, but we cannot deceive the Lord. The Pharisees were self-deceived, and so Jesus says to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Son also tells us in Revelation that for the church of Thyatira, which tolerated the teaching of the so-called prophetess Jezebel, that I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give each one of you according to your works. Need more be said. If my heart is known by God, what isn't? Indeed, God only, not only knows all things that are, traced on the paths of this world or in the depths of my heart, which even I don't know, but he also knows all possibilities. One example be sufficient. Read this account in 1 Samuel 23. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. And if we're not hearing what the story is telling us, we have to look at it carefully. David is spared. It's not that the word of God has failed. As God said, you're going to be delivered into the hand of Saul. Saul's going to come down. People are going to come against you. That didn't happen. Now, David was inquiring about possibilities. If I do this, what will happen? If you stay, David, Saul will get you. The Lord not only knows what will happen, but what would happen if. Can any of us say that? I forget what's happened in the past of my own life. I'm forgetful. 
something which should be in my grasp of what is to happen and what might happen or will happen if something happens, this knowledge is too high. I cannot attain it. None of us can attain it. If it is clear that God knows all things, it's equally obvious then that we don't. Logic demands this because we're finite. The finite cannot comprehend, get all around the infinite. So at the very least, we cannot know all there is to know about God, for if we did, we would be infinite, not finite, all-encompassing and not limited. And yet we know that there are other things we also don't know. We don't know much about Judas, son of James, and we know even less about James, son of Alphaeus. I am certain there is much more of interest here, but we don't know what it is. Other questions abound in our reading of the New Testament. Sometime between the time that Jesus went to Jerusalem with his parents, something like a bar mitzvah, and the crucifixion, it appears that Joseph died. Some might claim he abandoned Mary, but I think that's hard. I think that's hard to believe given his character, so I assume that he died. When did he die? How did it affect Jesus? What happened to the carpentry business? All of these things would be essential if you were going to write a novel about this, but it's all totally absent in the New Testament record. We don't know how Mary went from having a husband who provided for to being a widow. I've had to guess, and my guess might be wrong. Peter has a wife. We know this because he had a mother-in-law who was healed by Christ, and also because Paul tells us this. Yet we learn nothing, nothing at all, about his family life. How useful that would have been, we reason. How much we could have learned about the right way to order a Christian family reason that way, and yet we must be wrong to reason that way, because God in his good pleasure has chosen not to reveal it to us. And that must be for our good. Peter himself had to deal with this disappointment, this disappointment of not knowing all that one might want to know. Recall that seaside breakfast at the end of the Gospel of John, after which Christ asked Peter three times if he loves him, three times, one time each, for Peter's denial before the crucifixion. The third time grieves Peter numbers hit home. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. John 21, 17. Jesus in his divine nature knows all things. This Peter confesses. But after Jesus tells Peter of how he will die, Peter sees John and asks Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? That knowledge is denied, Peter. What is it to you, Peter? Your task is to follow Christ. You won't know what lies ahead for John, a long life, exile to Patmos, a revelation from God to complete the Bible. You won't know. And note that even John, at the end of his gospel, specifically says it's an incomplete record. There were lots of other things that Jesus did that he hasn't put down on paper. We don't have everything. God knows all. We are largely ignorant. Ignorant because we're finite. Ignorant because God keeps certain knowledge from us forbids us certain knowledge. Proverbs 25.2 tells us, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. God conceals things from us. This isn't a cover-up. This isn't some sort of stealth thing. It is for our good that we not know certain things. Paul describes such matters as past our finding out. Psalm 139, from which you've already heard, describes the knowledge as high so that we cannot attain it. Psalm 92.5 uses a different metaphor. O Lord, how great are your works! 
Your thoughts are very deep. High. Deep. Infinite. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Psalm 147, verse 5. High. Deep. Infinite. Unsearchable. Hear the prophet Isaiah. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. But not only do we not know everything because the knowledge is too high, deep, infinite, unsearchable, we are in many cases forbidden that knowledge. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And one of the main things that God hides is what is to come. It's true that he gives us prophecy in certain cases to tell us what to come. It is also true that David inquired of the Lord and found out what would happen if. Apart from that sort of thing, all attempts to find out what's in the future are roundly condemned in the Old Testament. It's witchcraft. It's divination. Don't even go there. Let the hidden things be hidden, and this applies to God as well. As Luther rightly points out in his book, The Bondage of the Will, wherever God hides himself and wills to be unknown to us, there we have no concern. Here the sentiment, what is above us does not concern us, really holds good. If God has not been pleased to tell us, then don't inquire. What can we say then? God knows all. We know some, it's true, but are largely ignorant. This should be, and it's strange to say this, it may be strange to hear it, this should be a joy to us. That we don't know all that we could should not be a trouble for us. We are creatures. We're finite. It's part of being finite not to know everything. We should be joyful that we are creatures, because that's how God has made us. We should delight in our creaturehood, and therefore even delight in not knowing everything, because it's how God has made us. It should be a blessed relief for us, if nothing else. We should likewise take great joy in God's omniscience, his knowing of all things. But of course, that depends largely on what direction you're heading. Note that a good number of the passages that I read earlier put God's omniscience in the context of either humans doing the right thing or humans doing the wrong thing. And whether God's all-penetrating gaze is a comfort or a curse to you will depend on what you're doing. Let's return to that last passage that I read from Isaiah and read the verse that came before it. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. This is a hard word for those who are trusting that God isn't seeing any of this. Well, let's go back to the first proverb that I read. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. This comes after a long section regarding adultery and fornication. Wickedness often explicitly relies in Scripture on God not seeing, which is a vain hope. Hear this from Psalm 94. They utter speech and speak insolent things. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand, you senseless among the people and you fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear. Shall he not hear? 
He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nation, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. Thus, God's omniscience is a terror to the workers of iniquity, but hear of the blessing for the believer. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Unbelievers may scoff at praying to God, bringing our concerns to Him when He already knows everything. For the believer, it should be a comfort. He already knows. So don't not say it, for he's commanded you to say it. But know that he already knows. And know that among those things that we don't know is what we should pray for as we ought. No worry, for the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What is the terror for the unbeliever? or even for the believer like Jonah who rebels, that God sees everything. C.S. Lewis, before he became a believer, desperately wanted a private universe. Christianity posited a cosmic interferer, central in its theology, knowing all, seeing all, being everywhere, of water. And that's a terror to us because of sin. We want to hide just like Adam. What is the comfort, though, for the believer that God sees? everything. Exactly the same thing. The thing that is a terror for the unbeliever or the rebellious person is the comfort for the believer that God sees everything. Nothing will escape God's knowledge. Not my sins for which he will discipline me. Not the, sin, not the sins of others which harm me so that I am freed from having to consider revenge. Not any eventuality that might prevent the grace shown me come to its proper fruition and eternity before the face of God. This should be a blessing to Jabez, known to us despite his obscurity, and to James, son of Alphaeus, known to us only in name despite his honored position as one of the twelve. No matter, you're known by God. When you wind your way down to the end of what you can know in any particular inquiry, and all yields mystery and unknown, sing the doxology that Paul sings similar circumstances in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let us go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that the fact that you know all and you see all be a comfort to us. We pray against our rebellion, Lord, which would make us hide, which is a vain striving, Lord, to hide from you. We can buy tickets on a boat going to Tarshish, yet we will not flee from you. We can cover ourselves up with fig leaves, and yet we are naked before you as the right of tells us. We pray that this would be a comfort to us. 
it should be a comfort to us, Lord, because it means so much of what we may spend our time doing, running, hiding, and covering up, is something that we can completely forget about doing. That we need not do that because it is impossible. Pray, therefore, that it would be a blessing to us, it would be a comfort to us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you are infinite, that you can know all things, <coughs> and that we are worth more than many sparrows. We ask for your blessing upon our consideration of your words, and we pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.